Fun Parts is a show about, well, all our fun parts. But just a heads up that we'll be speaking pretty frankly about bodies, sexuality, spirituality, faith, and a host of other related topics. This episode includes references to sexual abuse and trauma, which may be difficult or triggering for some listeners. Also, you might not want to listen with your kids around. Finally, you can join the discussion on our Instagram page at Fun Parts Podcast. Did you say genital breeze? Genital yes. breeze. A genital breeze. <laughs> Cha-ching. I had a deodorant one time that was called genital breeze. <laughs> it was a strange, it was strange. Smell. It was strange. It, it, I didn't use it for very long. It had an odor. <laughs> From Milieu Media Group, this is Fun Parts, an exploration of sexuality and spirituality. For anyone who's curious or convinced, there must be more. With your hosts, Latifa Alatas, Ashley Lusink, Steve Weens, Luke Bronner, and me, Becky Patton. Fun Parts! I'd like to ask, what definition would you use for sexuality? Do you mean the definition that we're coming into this with? Yes, right or now. Or the definition that we want to carry with well, us Let's. That's this. two questions. Thank you. Let's expand on this because there's always more. Let's name our definition now. Our working definition, Our right. working definition and total grace. We're working on, this is the definition I have right now. And then we can talk about what do we want it to be? Where are we headed towards? Hmm. That's complex. I've actually never asked myself that. I think about preference, identity, my body. I think about the act of sex. I think about, hmm... I feel a little stumped. Okay, so can we pause and notice that? Mm-hmm. That we feel a little stumped because there's probably assumptions that we have. There right. are hidden meanings. And the reality is we don't know what that is until we stop and pause and think about it, right? So it feels mm-hmm. a little bit uncomfortable. But Luke, I'm going to ask you, what would be your working definition of sexuality right now? So similar, I think that if I were using sexuality in a sentence, then I'm almost certainly talking about either orientation or gender identity. That's the only ways that I have any memory of ever using the word sexuality. Okay. And my question is, would you define sexual different than sexuality? Ooh, that's a great question. Because in the previous episode, we were talking a lot about sexual experiences. Mm -hmm. And I was realizing how my own response to how you were describing things, and I realized that we define it probably very differently. And so I'm curious to hear how you define sexual. And is sexual encompassing sensual, or are they different? Okay, I can. Well, Steve, did you have anything? Do you have a definition you want to share first? I'm uncomfortable with the word definition, but maybe description. <laughs> description. Okay. Yeah, okay. I love that. But it's if you look at it like a, maybe there's eight or nine overlapping circles: orientation, gender identity, family of origin, instruction, desire, your body image, mm-hmm. your experiences. All of that is your sexuality, mm-hmm. and all of that is sexual. All of that comes into play when you have experiences that are more than just a conversation that is about ideas, Mm -hmm. (laughs) you know? So that's very broad, but I think all of that belongs. Yeah, I think it does too. And I realize that for me, I think I have a definition around sexual if I'm experiencing something that is sexual. And I think sexuality is incredibly complex and holds a lot of different, I like your idea of the circles, a lot of different circles. So that means that there's a lot of space and there's a lot of interpretation and there's a lot of not definition, but I would call dimensions. 
mm-hmm. to sexuality. So I think sexuality, my definition would be, when I'm talking about it, is exploring the different dimensions of humanity. So there's an element of, because I think that there is something, our sexuality does hold a spiritual piece. I think it holds a very, there's a mindful piece to it. There's a chemistry that's going on. There's biology that's going on. There's a lot of different elements in our sexuality Mm. that even as I think of this person I know that's asexual, there's an element of while she's experiencing her sexuality in a way that is asexual, she still has dimensions of her sexuality that are connected to her soul, connected to her emotions. Mm. And so I think it's hard to define it. I agree that it's hard to define it, but I do have a working definition for sexual when I experience something sexual. But I want to say my definition started at anything sexual was sex. That's what my definition was. Well, that's sex. You know, that's all I had been given. Now I want to say, but I'm going to choose to say this is written in pencil, and I reserve the right to continue to grow and change. But right now I would define sexual as sensual awareness of my body being present to God, myself, and another. You say this one more time? Sensual awareness of my body being present to God, myself, and another. Can we unpack sensual? That's good. Thank you, Mm, Luke. Yeah, sensual. The way I would define sensual, and I think it's one of those words that... Let's just let Webster's define it. Webster's defines sensual as being aware with your senses, using your senses. And I have five senses. So it's like, I think when I eat, there's something very sensual. I mean, times when I'm eating, I've, I use this word, I feel like I'm actually having food orgasms. I'm like, oh my gosh, this is so good. It's like you're really tasting it and you're feeling it in your body. And I'm thinking of the goodness of what I'm putting in my body. And it literally feels like a whole body experience. Mm. In fact, I was out with one of my cousins having a meal in this amazing restaurant in Dallas. The food was like the smells were intoxicating. Like mm. a dish would go, I'm like, what's that? I'm thinking oh of Meg Ryan, gosh. you know, the movie. Yeah, Meg Ryan. I mean, yeah. Uh, when you're hearing about Sally. I, can I yeah. tell a story that might expand it even more away from sexual in the way that even food feels sexual sometimes? I was in a therapy session with my wife years ago, and I remember talking to the therapist, and I was saying, I feel like I'm just way too sensitive. I need to mm-hmm. find a way to get a thicker skin because every event that happens to me and as a pastor or whatever, it just goes way too deep. Oh, my I, gosh. I, That's I, so resonant for me. Really? <laughs> keep it coming. Keep it well, coming. So, so I said, please help me find a way to get a thicker skin. Mm-hmm. And she stopped, and she said, you know, Steve, you're sensual. And I'm 29 at the time or 30, and I immediately just got super uncomfortable. I was like, <laughs> What's the I chemical? Th- What's the, the <laughs> hormone? Yeah. Prolactin. 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 It was pushing off. And she goes, No, listen. And she would always offer us water or tea, and I would always pick tea. And she goes, Every time you come in, you put the tea bag in, and then you stir it a bunch of different times, and you're very sensual with that tea. She goes, That's what I've noticed. And she goes, My sense of you is that you were made to be sensitive, to sense things. Mm. And you could get a thicker skin, but if you did that, you would stop sensing what you need to sense. So I want to I invite you to get more comfortable with your being sensitive, but she expanded that to being like to your sensuality. Mm. And that helped me blow that way bigger than mm. sexuality. My sensuality is my ability to attune to mm-hmm. people 
mm-hmm. attuned to myself, attuned to environments. And the price I pay, sadly, and it is a big price, is that I tend to carry things too long. And, and I'm working on that. You know, there's detachment and stuff. There's mm-hmm. mindfulness. There's ways to not get so caught. But I've learned if I'm going to stay sensual, I'm going to have to pay the price of carrying things heavy. Mm-hmm. I've never thought of either sensitivity or sensuality. One, I've never thought of those together. I've yeah. never associated them with the idea that they're connected to my senses. But I've also never thought of them as being related to empathy. Yes. I mean, that's being an empath. Exactly. Mm-hmm. That's mm-hmm. interesting to me. Yeah. Here and I thought I was going to get thicker skin. <laughs> nope. Nope. You can. Well, you can. Here's you the thing, though. <laughs> you'll just be less human. Hmm. And that's a bigger price. I just want to read quick because I think this is so appropriate. It's, this is John Philip Newell. But the deeper we move in relation to any created thing, the closer we come to the eternal vitality of God. Ooh. Say that again, J.P. Newell. The deeper we move in relation to any created thing, the closer we come to the eternal vitality of God. And I think that comes back to that's the sacramental universe. Mm-hmm. That's just seeing everything as mm-hmm. sacramental. Yeah. And I mean, even that tea bag and mm-hmm. watching it swirl around. And I, I just, I'm thinking of me seeing those dishes go by and smelling that mm-hmm. smell. It mm-hmm. was like, there was something that was like, oh, that excites me in a beautiful way that people are doing this with food. That was probably a comfort element mm-hmm. for you that was very sensual in that element. And it was like, cause you're, you're going into therapy. I mean, that's a oh, tough yeah. place to be oh, yeah. and you needed something of comfort. Mm-hmm. See, and that's where I think as, as for me, mm-hmm. sexual is about body awareness. It's about mindfulness and being with my senses. My senses actually get to be alive. So we know that in trauma, one of the first senses that actually gets triggered is our sense of smell. Mm-hmm. <laughs> so oftentimes one of the things when I was doing some of my recovery work from sexual abuse, there were times that I would be making love with my husband and all of a sudden I just like, my body would go into this tremble and I couldn't get out of there fast enough. Mm. And I couldn't figure out what it was. And I was like, because it just one minute we're just having fun and pleasure. And it was his cologne Mm. because one of my abusers had worn the same cologne. Oh my gosh. Mm. And so when I get my face buried in that wonderful hairy chest of my husband that I just love and there was even a remnant of that scent. Wow. My body remembered it and was trying desperately to get away. Withdraw. Yeah, it was yeah. trying to help me be safe. Mm. And just the knowing of that, when I found out the scent, and it was like I allowed myself to be in the, I want to say, in sensual hell almost for a moment, in the pain of that, it was then I could remember, and went, wait, I've smelled that smell before. I can do something to protect my body from wow. that. And literally, I didn't have the language then, I have the language now, but to thank your body for, oh, I'm so sorry I ignored that. I Thank you. Becky, I want to notice something you did as you were telling that story, and I've seen you do this before. When you tell a story like that, you pause and your eyes go back and forth, right mm-hmm. to left, right to left, right to left. It's EMDR. It's EMDR. And mm-hmm. so if you don't know what EMDR is, it's a form, super quick form of therapy that replicates REM sleep. And what mm-hmm. happens in REM sleep is your brain is organizing the memories of that day. Certain memories get thrown out because you don't need to mm-hmm. remember those chips are old Dutch, but you do want to remember certain things. And then other things are so traumatic that you don't know where to put them. So they stay in your amygdala. Mm-hmm. And EMDR therapy is so beautiful. I've been through it, but mm-hmm. it's replicating by moving your eyes bilaterally back and forth, back and forth. There's something about that movement that, helps you to store that memory in a different place. 
in a different way. In a different too. way. It kind of, it's like my whole brain can hold it now versus that trauma place it holding re- it. It reprograms a neural pathway. Yeah. Yes. I did it with a therapist where I held two little yep, paddles in the squeeze. And yep. Mm-hmm. Yep. 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 And that was, Oh, Dr. Anderson, used, helped, he would yep. tap my knees. Yeah, tapping's oh another gosh, thing. I just love that man. But have you ever noticed that you do that? I do. I know I do that. And okay. part of that is that's a way, like even this morning, Luke and I were having this conversation and I was sharing some hard things with him and I found myself doing it. And it was like, I was checking in with my body. Am I okay sharing this? Is How's my body doing this? And then I said to Luke, I said, I, I'm checking in and I actually feel okay. But I think that's part of how my body handles it because I've done EMDR around some of my trauma. Steven, you, you just gave us a yeah. dirty 30 without a nerdy 30. Yeah. <laughs> yeah. Can, can I just 10 yeah. more seconds? So if you're in a moment where you're feeling anxiety, mm-hmm. what you can literally do is like cross your arms and then take your hands and tap mm-hmm. your arms, like tap your left arm with your right hand, mm-hmm. right arm with your left hand, just back and forth, back and forth. And there's something about that that will calm you down. It communicates okay. with the left and right side of your brain. Mm-hmm. Mm-hmm. Another thing you can do it is you cross your arms and yeah. interdigitate your fingers and then tuck them up under to your chest and mm-hmm. then tuck your right foot over your left foot. Mm-hmm. And at night you can do five deep breaths that way. And then you go out the other way and cross mm-hmm. them the opposite way mm-hmm. and five deep belly breaths. And that will immediately like calm your nervous system. Mm-hmm. I, I had to do that a lot in the exiting of my divorce, like wow. to like get to sleep. One of the things I was thinking about when you were talking about growing a thicker skin, mm-hmm. I was thinking about sexual trauma and I was thinking about how many friends I have that have, in essence, grown a thicker skin around their sexuality and a response to trauma. Mm-hmm. And so it makes me curious about how then we move out into the universe and we act in like maybe an unintentionally less humane way with our own bodies and the bodies of others. And so I'm curious if you're comfortable talking about, let's say you have a certain level of sexual trauma in your past that you're aware of. Mm -hmm. And my guess is you're doing some disassociative work with sexuality in order to do the act. Maybe it's you feel more callous about sex and you're like, well, sex doesn't really matter. So I'm just going to have it with anybody I want. And I'm going to say that's empowering. Maybe maybe you do feel empowered. I don't know. Or you could be avoidant of all sexual behavior because of like the fear or the body response. I'm just curious what you would say to people who've experienced trauma, Mm -hmm. like in the same way that Steve's therapist said to him, like, well, you can grow a thicker skin Mm -hmm. or the option is to move into the fact that you are a sensual being and is helping you engage with the world in a deeper way. Like, how do you do that? like when you've experienced pain in regards to sexuality? You know, I this sounds so simple and it's so hard mm. is you have to turn towards the pain. Mm. And I think the pain's trying to tell me something. And the reality that we know is the brain doesn't actually remember accurately. It's not because our brain has to keep reassimilating something in order to silence itself and find something. So when I started to remember some of my abuse, sure. my first thought was that I was crazy. Mm. But it came out in dreams, and it was coming out in ways that, I mean, they were bizarre, but it was like my body's trembling when I was remembering something. Somebody was smart enough, and I don't know who told me, it seems like your body's trying to let go of something. And around that time, I remember seeing a National Geographic special on when they tranquilized animals, that 
they would be in motion running and they'd get mm. tranquilized and they just very gradually their running motion would slow down until their limbs went to sleep. And when they came out of the tranquil being tranquilized, their body would pick up where it left off wow. and then would just mo- immediately move and they'd take flight. So they had the opportunity to experience the trauma of being shot and fear, but their body immediately moved it through. And what the human body tends to do, if you think about like when you experience something that's fearful, we tend to, <gasps> mm-hmm, mm-hmm. Yeah. and we clench and we mm-hmm. clench. And what we're mm-hmm. doing is we're holding on to it. So what I learned early on was to trust my body's response and not need to get the narrative right. What do you mean by that? Not need to have all the memory like, was I four or was I five? Was I, Uh, wait, did it? mm -hmm. And just recently I had a somatic element. I had somebody who wanted to, they're training to be a somatic therapist and they asked if they could use me as a guinea pig. And I was like, what's what's somatic somatic therapy? therapy to my understanding of it. And I'm kind of new to it, but one of the things is they actually help to read the energy in your body mm-hmm. and the ways in which our body might have stored trauma yeah. and in order to help us survive. And so through movement, like through yoga or through breathing or through touching the part of the body, touching that part of the body or just, but they run a scan over your body in order to see where there's large elements of energy stored. And then they help you with what are ways in which you can Move. do some movement to help the body to release that. But you can't just like release that without having an good therapy that goes with it. Like a mindful. So you can actually, it's a mindful practice. So you had a somatic experience. So I actually had a somatic experience with this gal in her training period where she was running over my body and I've had chronic issues with my right ankle. Like when I was in gymnastics, I would continually sprain my right ankle. And I have, like a couple of years ago, I, I rolled my ankle and it was I was off it for you know six weeks. And I actually have had plantar fasciitis for the last four months in my right ankle. And so I've been doing therapy for it. And the gal told me in physical therapy, she says, this isn't just your ankle. This actually is all the way up to your hip. And I was like, okay, okay. So in this somatic practice, as she's running over my body, she goes, wow, there's a lot of energy over your right ankle. She says, would you mind if we paused and we allowed your body to tell us what's going on here? And Now, I've done a lot of therapy work on my sexual abuse, and almost instantly my body told me, and I could feel a large male hand grab my right ankle Mm. and pulling on me. Mm. Now, what I remember of my first abuse was an uncle pulling me out from that. This is kind of the memory. I knew my uncle had abused me. I have odd memories, little bits of it. But he pulled me out from under the bed no. by grabbing my right ankle. No. And I think my body has held on to that trauma for a really long time. Mm. And it's been trying to help me, but it can't carry. And she literally, we sat with it. We did some exercises with it. And suddenly my right leg began to shake and tremble. And she asked me, she says, can you stay with this? Will you allow? And I imagined it. I just watched in my mind's eye and all the way up to my hip. And I imagined this like cold, hot liquid kind of moving through my system and just, it shot out the end of my leg. And I had a physical therapy appointment the next day with my, and she's been working with me for like three months. And she goes, wow, 
you've been doing your exercises, haven't you? This is like night and day. I've got movement here. And I just laid there and I went, I don't think this is about that. I just, yeah. so anyway. And we know that shaking is actually the physical manifestation of trauma exiting the body. So when people are shaking, it actually means that your body is processing Mm -hmm. trauma and trauma memories. Yeah. And I, I had a similar experience with my left hip. Yeah. It's pretty wild. I'm so glad you brought that up too, because I think in my work with people as, as a pastor and they're dealing with trauma and they've been through talk therapy and talk therapy is wonderful. It's so great. It's so needed. It's so necessary. But I think we're finally and thankfully entering into this field of science of the brain Mm -hmm. and the body where we now understand things like EMDR, things like somatic therapy, where books like Basil Van and The Body Keeps the Score, where we're realizing there's a different kind of therapy that's necessary that's more body related. It's not so much talking through our issues. Mm-hmm. We can talk through our issues at times until we're blue in the face and only a certain amount of healing can happen. I just yeah. firmly believe that now. But your right ankle was telling you there's something that needs to be worked on here. Mm-hmm. And in other episodes we've talked about, we can trust our body. We can trust our body to tell us mm-hmm. not necessarily what to do, <laughs> but where there is more work to do and that it needs to be done in an embodied way, mm-hmm. not just cerebral. We're not going to think our way out of this probably. Well, and what's interesting is because when it, a lot of times when our trauma happens, it's before our prefrontal cortex is actually developed. And so therefore we don't have logic and reason as a resource for where this trauma can go or how we can hold this trauma. And so I think that's one of the things that for people that have experienced trauma that I think is really important is we need therapy. We do need some therapy. And the other thing I want to say also is it may not just be one kind. Exactly. And it's like yoga. We know now Mm -hmm. that yoga is one of the most healing things for our body. We know that 10 minutes of meditation a day has immediate effect with trauma victims immediate. But part of it is it's a mindfulness and it's practicing it, not perfection of it. It's practicing it. Well, and let me, let me tell a quick story about mindfulness, because I think some people, if you haven't practiced it, you go, how in the hell is that going to help me with my trauma? Like Mm -hmm. sitting and then just feeling awkward about Mm -hmm. the fact that I'm just thinking about my laundry list. But this person told a story about they had to sit for an hour without moving. And it was just excruciating. This was like day nine of a 10 day. But so this guy experienced, he said, and I was sitting there and I'm not moving. And then I have an itch on my shoulder. Mm -hmm. Damn it. I have an itch on my shoulder and and I want to itch that thing so bad, but you know, I'm not moving. And he goes, I felt that itch come and really feel intense. And then I felt it go and it no longer itched, even though I didn't itch it mindfulness over time teaches us that things come and things go the impermanence of things. And so that's not the only thing you need, but one of the things we get so stuck in, whether it be spiritual trauma, physical trauma, sexual trauma, any kind of trauma is that you get frozen in a reality of panic and anxiety and you don't know what to do and you don't know what to do with it. And it's going to be here forever and mindfulness trains your mind. Mm-hmm. If you do mindfulness long enough, eventually you just know that you can tap, breathe, 
and remind yourself that as much as anxiety as I'm feeling right now, it's impermanent. It, 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 this yeah. too will move. This, there's, will move. this is There's a phase of this. This just day before yesterday, I was in traffic that was like horrible. And I found myself, I could feel my shoulders rising up here. And I was just like, oh my gosh, I'm going to be late. I'm not going to make it. And I went, I actually have a resource. And I began to just deep breathe while I was driving. And that drive, I began to notice that driver there. I began to notice the things around me versus being against the things around me. So I think yeah. maybe what we're getting at then in the midst of a conversation where we're trying to say, or the thesis statement here is that our sexuality and our spirituality are intentionally intertwined. I think a really easy way to get there for people who maybe don't see that connection. This is at least the connection that I'm making is to zoom out from that a little bit and just say, okay, so my body and my soul are connected. My body and my like mind and spirit, those things are clearly intertwined. I mean, that's what we're talking about with this, like working through emotional things using physical pathways. Mm-hmm. Am I on the right track to say yeah, that, like, I think that's, you're totally on that's the right sort track. of the path towards where we're headed of saying our sexuality and our spirituality are intentionally intertwined? A hundred percent. Okay. And I think one of the things that we need to recognize, I do think it's therapy. I think there's talk, there's EMDR, there's somatic, there's yoga, there's all these different things, but I think we underestimate the power of nature Yeah, for part of our healing. I've had more yeah. revelations when I'm walking and a breeze blows. Mm-hmm. There's something about the nature of a breeze mm-hmm. that yeah. I'll have aha moments. For me, one of the most healing things has been water. Yeah. Water, so. just the movement of water. There was a moment in my healing that I was out in Colorado, and for some reason, I we love to climb waterfalls. But I found that there was this huge rock out in the middle, and I remember launching myself to land on this rock in the middle of a uh, waterfall and so it was risky it was dangerous you know I mean I and I love the element of that and I get out there and I'm kind of laying on the rock and I'm just like kind of doing what I would call at that time just crying out to God going I am so sick of this pain I can't stand it I am going to destroy my girls my family I can't do this it'd be so easy to just jump in this water and let it carry me away and I felt this urge to put my foot in the water and I put my foot in the water and this very gentle thought, voice, whatever you want to call it, said, can you put your foot in the same place in the water twice? I'm watching this water just go over my foot and it's never again going to touch. That water is already gone. By the time I look at it, it's gone. And I realized the next breath voice was, it's not always going to be here. There's more. Mm. And I was like, okay. So I think in some ways it was that meditative thing of that's what I wasn't doing meditation at that time in my life, but it was like, oh, there's movement that's going on for me. I'm not always going to be stuck in the same place. I'm not always going to be feeling this pain in this way. There's something coming. Is every moment of your life poignant? <laughs> like, yes. Like you're just you're experiencing life in a deeper way than I am. And sensuality. It She's is. talking that's, about that's sensuality. It's, like, it's sensuality. It's, it's amazing. Embodied. I love your stories. Yeah. Oh. They're so rich. Oh, thank you. I think uh, you are attuned, especially to yourself and to the world. Yeah. I, I don't know if this is moving backwards at all. It's if okay. the water's flowing the opposite. Backwards. It's okay. So I was just feeling curious about how I would have defined sexuality 10 years ago or 15 mm-hmm. years ago as Good opposed question. to how I define it now. And I was like thinking about if someone had asked me like before I gotten married 
or early on in my marriage or even mid-marriage, like how I define sexuality, what would I say? And I definitely think words like purity, duty. And then I think maybe like it came up because we're also talking about trauma. And I think about friends of mine who have had very painful sex within the bonds of marriage. Mm-hmm. And it's all around expectation and duty and dogma. I'm just like, I'm wondering like, because I'm also thinking about what you're talking about, Luke, like how do I untangle what was woven for me in this definition? And, you know, some of the stuff that did my untangling was my divorce and then all my therapy and then like new experiences post-divorce. So I had a lot of experiential untangling. And now I'm trying to kind of catch up my definition, I'm realizing, because I'm. you asked me, I was like, oh, I feel a little stumped. But I would have described it so differently 10 years ago. Oh, me too. Yeah. And so I guess I'm just wondering... Do you think experiential entangling is the path because that would be sensual and that would be embodied? Do you think it's possible to have untangling that's just mindful entangling? Or do you think it, it literally has to be embodied in unentanglement for this kind of definition of like, what is my sexuality? What is my sensuality? The thought that's happening in my mind is that I think for a lot of folks who share my particular baggage around sexuality, one of the things that's going to be helpful, and I think you're saying this without mm-hmm. saying it, is that like the detangling has to happen at least somewhat from influences outside of the Bible. So we, mm-hmm. we have so many of us only look to the Bible to redefine or to define everything for us because we think that's what we're supposed to do. That sort of infers that there is nothing outside of our particular theology or our particular framework yeah. that is worth influencing us. Yeah, and so that's why I say it's kind of connected to the experience. It is because I, I practice yoga very religiously for about 10 years. I'm a little out of practice in the last year because I just moved cities. But like it's staring in a mirror looking at my hot, sweaty body, honestly, in spandex. <laughs> I, I mean, that sounds really sexual, but I just mean it in the sense like I just stared at my body. Mm-hmm. I was feeling my body. I was connected with my breath and the different muscles in my body, the places that were energy felt stuck, the places that energy mm-hmm. would flow. And I learned to love my body like in yoga, Mm -hmm. like my relationship with my body shifted in that practice. Mm -hmm. And it was outside of like the Bible and and, and which requires us maybe first acknowledging or accepting that like, we are so often asking the biblical text to do something it's not intended to do. Yeah. We're looking for things there that just aren't going to be there. Yeah. Can we do a nerdy yeah, nerdy, nerdy, nerdy. Okay. please? Okay. Nerdy, 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 nerdy. This might be a nerdy 60. Okay. <laughs> but before the Reformation, 1500s, the Pope was the infallible authority of the church. So whatever the Pope said went. Mm. One of the things the Reformation did was take the infallibility of the Pope away from the Pope, and it gave it to the Bible, which was maybe a movement forward because it's probably not okay for one person to hold the infallibility of God's word, right, of of, of God. So when Luther pounded the 90 theses on the Wittenberg door, and then the Bible got translated into German— And so the people could read it. And then theology is like the priesthood of all believers. And so now the infallibility of God is not centered in the Pope. It's centered in the Bible. And that's a good move on one, depending on your theology, but it's a good move because it spreads out who can read the Bible, listen to the Bible, right? 
meet God through the Bible. This is great news, depending on your theology, okay, Protestant, Catholic, whatever. But now, 500 years later, the Bible has become the Pope again, right? Mm -hmm. It's just the paper Pope. And it's this wooden... Paper Pope. It's this... I I didn't make that up, but it's that phrase, but it's this wooden document. Infallible. We say it's infallible, inerrant. Sometimes we say it. The problem is that there are so many different definitions of what certain things say and what Mm -hmm. it doesn't say. So when someone says... I believe what I believe based on what the Bible says. Mm -hmm. What they don't, what I and you, what we don't understand is that we think we've rooted our beliefs in the infallibility of God, but we've rooted our beliefs in a very untrustworthy (laughs) interpretation of those scriptures Mm -hmm. based on the telephone game over years, translations, but more than that, Politics, politics, our sociology, the time in which we live, the country in which we live, our ethnicity, and all that stuff is layered on top of what we say we believe. And so when we say, I got, just got to look to the Bible to get my theology right, to define my sexuality, it's no wonder why we're just in a tangled mess. Mm-hmm. Yep. There's this psychologist, Robert Keegan, who does work on what does it mean for an adult to develop? And he says, I love this quote. He's like, the great moment of embarrassment, but also liberation, is when you understand what you've taken as reality is only a construct yes. mm-hmm. of reality. Amen. And that can yeah. sound so wow. threatening to some of us. Like, yeah. what do you mean? Oh my gosh, are you saying that you know God's word isn't true? No, 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 no. But whatever God's word is, <laughs> it's like the 17,000 layers that I would have to plumb through to finally find it, mm-hmm. the best I can do is create a construct. And so when we can climb out of that, then we can say so many things are helpful. Yoga is helpful. The Bible is helpful, but only so far. Go ahead. No, I was just going to say that one yep. of the most helpful things for me over the last few years of this, I mean, now 20 year journey of deconstructing that with which I grew up is the community that I'm a part of in Houston. I'm a part of a church that our priest constantly reminds us, Jesus is the word of God. Yes. The Bible is our greatest witness to the word of God, but we've elevated scripture to be something that it's not intended to be. And to believe that is to revere scripture appropriately. Yes. Yes. And so many people receive that as well, then you just don't, you don't believe the word of God. It's like, no. And how that plays out practically is when we come up against something that is very complicated about the text, which has been layered and layered and layered with interpretation and language and all of the things. The task for us is not to just take it at face value. The task for us is to apply Christological pressure to that idea and say, okay, well, how would I interpret this through the person of Jesus as I know him through scripture? And that changes. I mean, that's, For me, that's how it's very easy to arrive at a place of affirming LGBTQIA brothers and sisters in light of the very complicated ways the text talks about sexuality. And in fact, it changes the way that I read those texts. There's lots of ways that you can get there that aren't only applying Christological pressure, but that always that will always get me there. Does that make sense? It makes total sense to me. And for somebody that's like sitting in my seat, which is like, well, man, I mean, the Bible was written in a time where women were property. Right. And I just, that's how I feel right now. Mm -hmm. And I've had to lean into experiential discovery and 
Breezes. I also love that your pastor's last name is Breeze. <laughs> so that is just, good. By the way, I just thought that was kind of fun. But there, there are other ways I've had to encounter the divine yes. in order to feel safe to engage with like these topics and still like enjoy spirituality and enjoy a relationship with God. So I just had to say that because when there's a lot of Bible talk, I feel like I have to be the person that's like, hey, also there's room. There's room for those of us that are like, I can't do that. I'm done looking at that text for answers because it's been so weaponized. And I really appreciate, don't mishear me in that, I appreciate the thinkers and the scholars that are doing good work to unpack it in a way that is unharmful and unweaponized, I do believe that is happening. I'm just not ready to engage with it. Well, yet. okay, can I just say yes? You say, go right uh, ahead. Do another so, yeah. nerdy ninety. I, I don't even know if this is a nerdy thirty, but I would say two things to that. Just like Becky told a story about the cologne that she yeah. breathed in that was yes. an abuser's cologne, creates and now trauma. Creates trauma. I think. For many people, reading the Bible is that same exact thing. I actually have a physical response yep. when people bring up the mm-hmm. Bible. And this is one of the many times I hate – well, hate is the strong word. I don't love being a pastor many times. Mm. But the times that I love it is when I can look at a person and say, you need to stop reading the Bible for yeah, as long man. as it takes, maybe forever. Maybe <laughs> yeah. forever. Honestly, you will not – it's just been in the last – hundred or so years that people actually read the Bible literally you know, individually. together. Yeah. Yeah, or, yeah, individually. In fact, our Jewish friends would look at us and say, like, you read the Bible by yourself? What are you crazy? Like that, like <laughs> yeah. you can't pos- that's bad. It's bad yeah. for you. So that would be number one. And I think like I said early on, I think one of my missions in life is to give people permission to find God where they find God and to follow the truth where it goes. And so I that's I love saying that to people. Some people need to put down the Bible maybe forever, and that's okay because it's so traumatic. Recently, I had this experience where, you know, I was a pastor's daughter, so I was PK, and I grew up eating, breathing scripture all the time. And one of the things that I realized at one point was I needed to get rid of my formative Bible Mm. in order to allow space for reforming something. And so I took that Bible that I kind of knew on the top left corner right there that I know that verse and I have it, you know, all that. And I took that Bible and I put it away for a really long time. You mean like your actual Bible? Are you talking about an actual Bible? An actual Bible. From It was very formative. It was when, from my youth. It was from my youth. and Certain it was, verses are underlined. Certain, yeah. And, and there's color and all that stuff like that. And so I knew it so well, but I knew it from that place of what had been given to me. And I remember sitting at home alone and I was, I knew right where it was at in the cupboard it was in. And I felt like, I don't want that in my house anymore. Yeah. I've outgrown Hmm. that. Mm -hmm. And I had by then replaced myself with an, I mean, I have a different Bible now and I just, and it's like new and fresh and it's a different version and everything. And, but it sits right there with my roomy, you know, poetry. And sometimes that's my Bible in the morning. Mm -hmm. But I felt this burning sensation of, I don't want that in my house anymore. It's like it was a deconstructive moment. And so I took the Bible out. I thanked it for what it had done. And then I stood and fed the pages into our fireplace. Wow. Did you grow up, Luke, like I did, where you didn't drop the Bible? You didn't throw the Bible? Of course. I mean, you didn't burn the Bible? Oh, my gosh. The denomination I grew up in is the Church of Christ, which in the South is entirely a cappella because – the sort of founding pillar for that denomination is you speak where the Bible speaks and you're silent where the Bible is silent. And because there's no New Testament example of people using instruments in worship, 
you don't use instruments in so worship. Intense. It's things like that. Like it's really, mm-hmm. really. And, but for me, it was the waters I was swimming in. So I yeah. didn't know anything mm-hmm. else. Yeah. I grew up in a world where like, if you were Baptist, that was like as liberal as you could be. Mm-hmm. That was like the full <laughs> spectrum <laughs> for me. Yeah. Which is insane to think about today. I think like for me, it was like, I love the stories of Jesus. I still love the stories Mm -hmm. of Jesus. Who isn't compelled by a person that sees the least of these and just sits with them and chills with them and defends them and hangs with them and speaks truth Mm -hmm. to power? Like who doesn't love a figure like that? I mean, I am still so encouraged by those stories it's not like my knowledge of the Bible has disappeared because I have a complicated relationship with it, but I just, mm, I think I'm tuning in to this right now is that like, it would be false for me to make the claim that my experiences do not insanely influence my spirituality. Yes. And like, I was already deconstructing Christianity and faith pre-divorce but it was going through my divorce, which then kind of outcasted me from not all my communities. I have wonderful friends who are still Christians that love me so well, I want to say, but from the broader big C church, I guess I would say, that kind of made me be like, well, now I guess I have all the room and space in the world to explore all my questions because I've already kind of been disregarded. And those things are still happening to me. And it's that freedom that's letting me like go through and realize how much of my narrative how much of my definitions for terms and for ideas, which influence the decisions I made to live my life, which you say is like my, my theology, like put in these like pylons of like for a structure of how I live my life. Like how many of those things were just misinformed, misplaced and created a lot of damage for the course of my life. And so now it's like I've been excommunicated from certain places and now I have the freedom to like dig up as much as I want. But gosh, like the Bible and the teaching I got from people who took the Bible in a very specific way about my sexuality, about my duty, about marriage, about relationships set a course for my life that kept me in a situation that I knew I know better, like as an experiential person. And what's amazing is it's spiritual bypassing, like the things that I overrode because I thought I was like serving God correctly, that grieves me. Mm-hmm. And so like... I'm having a lot of compassion for my own experience. Yeah. Yeah. And I'm like thinking about other people yeah. who are have done so much spiritual bypassing. And that spiritual bypassing isn't just like, oh, I got off the freeway. I'm on a feeder for a couple stops. It's like they ended up like in a lake in their car and yeah. they had to walk away from the car yeah. and now they're on foot. You know? And many of them don't walk away from the car. That's the problem. They is like, yeah. that, that is, they that is repression. I mean, it's the yeah. same yeah. repression yeah. that... We talk about sexual repression mm-hmm. a lot, but like, that's all I think of is you said that, you know, you would be lying if you said that your experiences don't influence your spirituality. They do. Well, anyone would be lying if they said that. Right. Yeah. But people who can't acknowledge that, to yeah. me, that is them just repressing yeah. all over again. Yeah, I can mm-hmm. definitely say part of my very complicated relationship with the Bible is how it's affected somebody in my body with my color skin. Mm-hmm. Mm-hmm. Yeah. 100%. Part of why I shared that story is because... I think, for me at least, I want to say, there's an element of we have to let go of some of the things that have formed us. But what I'm watching today's day in today's culture 
is people are moving into the anger, which they need to move into the anger, mm. but they're not moving out of the anger. Mm. And what I felt in that moment, because I had been angry when I separated myself from that Bible because I'd felt betrayed by it, but I'd moved into this place, this deep love I'd returned to that I could actually go, oh, I don't have to be afraid of what formed me. I need to find a way to befriend that so that ultimately I can live knowing that's a part of my story but it doesn't define my story. And so it was like literally a loving gesture. Mm -hmm. I pulled the pages apart. I looked at them. I noticed. I honored where I'd come from. Mm -hmm. And I felt like as I watched it all burn down, I was like, and out of the ashes, God, you have brought beauty to my life. Mm -hmm. So I'm not rejecting what I grew up in. I'm saying, okay, that was the pool I was swimming in. Mm -hmm. And people around me were doing the best they knew how. Yep. And they were some of them were doing a pretty shitty job. Mm -hmm. But the reality, that was the best they had. And I want to have more in the future to offer to other people. But sometimes we need to let go of something in love. This episode of Fun Parts was produced, edited, and mixed by me, Luke Bronner. Our artwork was designed by the very talented Alan Lusink. Nerdy 30 was composed and produced by Latifa Alatas, and other music from this episode is from the fine folks at Blue Dot Sessions. Check out our website at funpartspodcast.com, and be sure to follow us on social media at funpartspodcast. Lastly, if you want access to bonus and behind-the-scenes content from this and other Milieu Media Group shows, join our neighborhood at the Patreon link in the show notes. And now, here's a scene from the next episode of Fun Parts. It feels like the right thing to do, quote-unquote, morally, is to bear it myself so that others don't have to. So that the people who will struggle with me having a, a different sexual ethic or whatever, it's easier for me to just bear the burden, to continue to bear the burden of repression than to put them through the experience of me moving on. Does that make sense? 